Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Kurt Morgan, President and CEO of Vistra Energy, ticker symbol VST. If you've listened to the interview with NRG's Kirk Andrews, you already know that Vistra is the only other pure play independent power producer publicly traded in the U.S. today. Last year around this time, there was a company called Calpine Corporation, which was acquired by the private equity firm Energy Capital Partners. And this company, Company, Fistra, closed on the acquisition of Dynagy earlier this year. The IWTB podcast is proud of the fact that we now have management interviews from an entire subsector. I know, we're only talking about two companies, but it's something we're proud of. Vistra has a super interesting history. You'll hear more about this from Kurt, but Vistra used to be part of a larger utility in Texas called TXU Corporation. TXU's generation portfolio largely consisted of coal-fired generation facilities. And it's very important to remember that in electricity markets, the marginal cost of electricity is a function of natural gas prices. The reason is due to the fact that generation facilities fueled by natural gas can adjust output very quickly, which means they can respond to the market's price signals. Coal-fired generation facilities take significantly more time to ramp up and ramp down production. Renewable energy facilities like wind and solar can be ramped down, but if the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, there's no way to increase output. Back in the early to mid-2000s, demand for natural gas was growing pretty significantly. While at the same time, domestic production of natural gas had stagnated, and at least in 2005, was in decline. For a major coal-fired power producer like TXU, the outlook was bright. So bright that three large private equity firms came together to buy TXU, which was renamed Energy Future Holdings. The three firms purchased TXU for roughly $45 billion in what was the largest leveraged buyout in U.S. history. However, it was around that time that advances in horizontal drilling in the shale formations across the U.S. resulted in something that we call the shale boom. The shale boom reversed the decline of domestically produced natural gas and eventually resulted in massive supply growth. Within a 14-month period from 2008 to 2009, the price of natural gas declined by more than 80% to $2.40 per million cubic feet. Wholesale electricity prices also came down significantly. Private equity firms usually use a lot of debt in leverage buyouts. With a massive amount of debt and the collapse in power prices, Vistra's net debt to adjusted EBITDA went to about 12 times. Energy Future Holdings eventually filed for bankruptcy protection in 2014. It's important to note that Energy Future consisted of three business segments. Encore, the regulated transmission and distribution business, TXU Energy, the electric retail business, and Luminant, the competitive electric business. TXU Energy and Luminant emerged from bankruptcy in 2016 as Vistra Energy. And at least from a balance sheet perspective, the company looked very, very different. Vistra's leverage or net debt to adjusted EBITDA was about two times and the generation business's per unit cost of producing energy was reduced by almost 50%. Similar to NRG, Vistra's management team saw the advantages of the integrated power model and started down the path of optimizing the new business model. I should note that Vistra's emergence from bankruptcy couldn't have come at a worse time. From mid-2014 to late 2016, the three independent power producers, or IPPs, that were publicly traded over that period 
So NRG, Dynagy, and Calpine had witnessed their shares decline by between 50 and 75%. Dynagy, which you'll hear more about during the interview, saw their shares drop from about $36 a share to $6 a share. I'll be honest when I say that I've had some luck in timing some of my personal investments, no more so than with Dynagy. I bought shares and options when Dynagy's market cap came close to the bottom. Fortunately for me, Kurt Morgan has impeccable timing as well. Seeing the value in Dynagy's equity, as well as the numerous opportunities to extract synergies from a transaction, Vistra announced it would acquire Dynagy in the third quarter of 2017. Full disclosure, I held on to my Dynagy shares, which are now Vistra shares, so I do own Vistra stock. But before the transaction, Vistra's market exposure was limited. The only power market that they were a part of was ERCOT, Texas's power pool. The Dynagy acquisition not only improved Vistra's generation portfolio in Texas, because Dynagy had some assets there, but it diversified Vistra's portfolio by giving the company exposure to the PJM and ISO New England competitive power markets. The acquisition did increase Vistra's leverage, but the company plans to pay down more than $3.5 billion of debt over the next several years. And it expects to have an additional $6 billion of cash available for allocation over the next four years. That means Vistra should generate at least $9.5 billion of free cash flow over the next four years, which is pretty impressive given that the company only has a market capitalization of about $12.5 billion today. One more thing worth mentioning. The Dynagy acquisition resulted in Vistra being long generation in the state of Texas. So what does that mean and why does that matter? If you recall from my intro to the interview with Kirk Andrews, pairing generation with retail provides the IPPs, who have an integrated power business, with a natural hedge. Wholesale power prices go up, the company benefits on the generation side of the business, but retail margins suffer. The opposite happens when wholesale power prices go down. If you have more generation capacity than your retail customers can consume, or at least what you have contracted for, then your long generation and short retail. Based on the fact that several generation facilities have retired in the state of Texas, coupled with the growing demand in the state, the outlook for power prices in the ERCOT region hasn't been this good in a very long time. And the ERCOT market structure is unique because it probably is the purest form of a competitive power market. With a few minor exceptions, there aren't many exogenous factors that influence the supply of power in the state. The decision to retire old facilities or to build new ones in the ERCOT market is almost completely driven by the price of power. And while ERCOT does have a price cap of $9,000 a megawatt hour, that cap is much higher than any other competitive power market. The point is, the stars have seemingly aligned for Vistra when you consider the company's market position and the improving ERCOT market fundamentals. Of course, power markets are extremely difficult to predict, which is highlighted by the story I just told about energy future holdings. Investors should always be cautious with commodity-exposed businesses, and especially cautious with power markets given the rapid evolution of power generation technologies and the political initiatives and motivations behind them. However, I would like to emphasize two key differences between the old and new versions of the IPP model. The IPPs have much lower debt levels now, and they seem to have figured out the secret sauce of combining generation with retail. The Bloomberg terminal includes seven sell-side recommendations for Vistra stock. Five out of the seven have buy ratings, and the average price target is about $29 a share, which is about 23% upside relative to Vistra's share price today. I'll leave it there. Let's get to the interview with Kurt. 
Kurt Morgan, thank you very much for coming on to the IWTV podcast. It's going to be a pleasure talking about your business. Thanks, Nate, and, and appreciate the uh, opportunity to join you on your podcast. I look forward to uh, the questions you have and providing uh, as many answers as I possibly can. So it's great to be here. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So could we first start, start out talking about your background? How'd you get into the power business? So that's a good question. I, uh, I've spent roughly 35 years in the, in the broader energy industry. You know, I was with Amoco Corporation for, I don't know, maybe uh, almost 14 years. So, and I was in the upstream and the downstream and also chemical business. So I kind of saw a lot of the, you know, the energy business. And then I was recruited out of, out of that company, uh, you know, at Amoco to go to what was then called Houston Industries that became Reliant. And we were the integrated utility when I started at Houston Industries. So we would, and, and, and the, the wires business became Centerpoint. And then the, we spun off the competitive generation and retail business uh, into what is, what, what was known as Reliant, which has now been become part of NRG. And that's how I got into the power business. And that was 20, just a little over 20 years ago. So I've been in the power business since then and, and more, more in the uh, competitive side, a little bit of time with the regulated utility, but mostly on the competitive uh, generation side, but also with power generation and uh, retail business. So I, I have a pretty broad historical background working on both generation wholesale, you know, trading and marketing as well as uh, the retail business. And you spent some time at Energy Capital Partners, is that correct? I did. I spent about, uh, I guess it was almost 10 years with Energy Capital Partners. And uh, when they bought, they did their first investment, actually, uh, I knew a guy named Doug Kimmelman, who many people know uh, in the broader energy industries, their senior partner. And when they acquired some assets, from Northeast Utilities, which now uh, is, I think, Eversource, they asked me to come in and be the CEO. That company was was formed and then it's called First Light. We sold that to, to what was known at the time, GDF Suez, which is now Anji. And then I stayed with them after we sold that and we built another company called Equipower, which interestingly, we sold uh, most of that to Dynagy. So a lot of the assets that we had at Equipower, it was almost a 10,000 megawatt company. A lot of those assets came back to us uh, when we acquired Dynagy recently. So I'm very familiar with a lot of the assets that we, we acquired. Yeah, yeah. It was the second to last interview that I had with uh, Steve Newby and he's got a relationship with Energy Capital Partners and I had the opportunity to meet some of those guys while I was on the buy side and I've just got a lot of respect for those guys and their ability to see value and, and act on it. So Yeah, they they're it's a good group of, of guys. They're smart. And, and by the way, just so you know, Steve, I uh, I was on the board of uh, Summit throughout the uh, throughout the beginning and then uh, I had to, I left when I came here. I just didn't have the time to be on a public company board, but so I, I, uh, I guess you would say I'm a bit of a mentor of sorts to Steve when his early years being a CEO, but we're very good friends. So I'm glad that I, I heard that I heard that he joined you on your podcast, which oh, really? I'm glad I, that uh, he was able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great interview. And I didn't realize you guys had that relationship. So, yeah. So could, could you provide us with a little history of, of Vistra? So I, I don't know if 
our listeners are familiar with the, at the time, was one of the largest leverage buyouts in history of Energy Future Holdings. And and I just think the history there is fascinating. And if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit of it from your perspective, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, so this is a company that has been around a long time and most people probably recognize, you know, Texas Utilities, TXU, actually goes back to Dallas Power and Light. Reliant had basically the Houston area of Texas. This particular company has its roots in the Dallas, in the greater Dallas area of Texas. And they were the two, really the two predominant regulated utilities for years. You may, may know that John Wilder became the CEO of what was TXU at the time and then sold that, as you said, to TPG, KKR, Goldman Sachs, in a, in a huge leverage buyout transaction. And at that time, uh, Nay, you may remember this, but gas was about $8 an MMBTU. They put on as lo- far out as they could, they put on, uh, I think, of almost five years of hedges on gas. But as you well know, the shelf, the shelf uh, formation explosion occurred. Gas prices went down with a two handle on them and they couldn't hedge out. So it was kind of a long march into bankruptcy that I think is maybe the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. The, where we came from all that is um, there were some complications in getting Encore, the regulated part of Energy Future Holdings, uh, out of bankruptcy, but we were able to spend, we were spun out of the EFH bankruptcy, uh, and we were called at the time TCEH, Texas Competitive Energy Holdings, and then we changed our name to Vistra, which I'll talk about here in a minute. But anyway, we were the generation and we were the, the retail TXU energy component of EFH. And we were able to get a head start, get out into the marketplace back in October of 2016. The name Vistra, which was already developed before I got here, so I can't lay claim to it, got its origins in sort of vision, meaning people thinking, hey, we're coming out of bankruptcy, so we want to think about the future but not forget about the tradition of the past. So it's, you know, VIS is for, for vision, future, and then the TRA was for the tradition. And then we formed it for Vistra, one of those concocted names. I actually, have, it's, I've grown to like it, but that's, that's where Vistra came from. And, and of course now uh, after the Dynegy transaction, we've changed yet again, but we came out of the bankruptcy of Energy Future Holdings. Yeah, I didn't know the history behind the name. That's it's really interesting to to learn. So thanks for that story. Could you talk about Vistra's assets? So you've got a generation business and a retail business. Could you just provide kind of an overview of your your generation fleet and where your retail business exists today? Yes. So after the the Dynagy merger, we've got you know almost I guess forty two thousand megawatts. And um, I, I think it might be useful to kind of talk about the evolution of the company that went into bankruptcy and then came out of bankruptcy and where we are today, because I think it, it gives a, a, a good segue into kind of where we're trying to take the company. So, and we can talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. But this is a company that was predominantly coal. I think we had at one point in time, we had roughly 1% gas. I mean, we had gas peakers. And we were a coal company. And you may remember that John Wilder went on a big coal build in, in, in the state of Texas, which created a, a huge fervor in this state. But it was a, it was a company very much uh, you know, steeped in coal. We, we were a coal mining company as well as a, a, as a coal power producer. And we had a significant amount of mines, which was rare. I mean, very few 
power companies had that, but that's the complexion of the company. We did have the big nuclear facility, Comanche Peak, which is the lowest cost nuclear plant in the country, uh, but there wasn't much gas. And then we purchased 3,000 megawatts of natural gas combined cycle, state-of-the-art plants, Forney and Lamar from Nextera. That began the evolution of the change. Then we acquired a 1,000 megawatt Odessa plant, and then in the Dynegy transaction, we got over 3,000 megawatts of, of combined cycle gas. And then if you combine that with the 4,200 megawatts of coal retirements, we took a company that was 1% gas uh, with a lot of old and aging coal plants to a company now that is, you know, over 50% gas. And then if you take, you know, we added a 180 megawatt Upton 2 solar facility and a 10 megawatt battery system, which we can talk about if you'd like later. Um, you know, we're over, we're, we're about 53% gas and renewables, 37% coal. And the remaining coal is really advantaged coal. In particular, Oak Grove uh, plant has single digit, sort of mid single digit cost of fuel, cost of fuel. So it is a, 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 a really strong asset. And so we've got this company that's now become renewables and become gas heavy with Advantage Coal and then also with the nuclear plant that I mentioned that is lowest cost in the country. And we're actually going through an exercise through our operation performance initiative that we're doing with McKinsey. We're doing that at Comanche Peak, which is actually going to reduce their cost to do business. So we like what we've done in the complexion of what we have in ERCOT. And of course, we love the retail business. It is by far the best brand in Texas. It's the largest residential retail business. We have the strongest margins in, in the ERCOT market. We have reduced our attrition rates to you know less than 1%, significantly less than 1%. Uh, and we have a team here that is, it is a true retail marketing company that's very innovative and has done a tremendous job. So when we put all that together, we have a really great set of assets. And when you think about our company too, you know, in ERCOT, our, our EBITDA by market is around 50 to 60%, depending on where energy prices are in any given year. So we're still highly uh, leveraged to ERCOT and, and the ERCOT market right now, we believe is in really good shape and we think uh, it will continue to be that way. We're also about 24% PJM and 12% ISO New England. Those are our core markets. We're, we're, we're diversified now too with the, with the addition of Dynagy. We, we have picked up between retail, which is very stable and uh, our, our capacity payments. That's, that's roughly 50% of our EBITDA coming from those relatively stable revenue streams. And then if you take a look at our ability to hedge and we have the balance sheet to do it at any given time, and, you know, we're significantly hedged as a company, which creates this more stable earnings stream, which is what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Could you provide us with a summary of the motivations and the rationale for the Dynegy acquisition late last year? And for the listeners who aren't aware, Dynegy was one of the four publicly traded IPPs or, or merchant generators that were publicly traded last year. Could you just provide us with the rationale on Vistra's side of the fence and also your thoughts on diversification of the generation fleet, your generation fleet? Yeah, I, th I think that there was, you know, we saw value first and foremost, there was a su substantial amount of value in the synergies and the operational performance improvements that we were able to put in place. I think you know that we've announced now up to $500 million 
of synergies and operational performance initiatives. And we think there's upside from there. You know, no matter what your valuation metric is, whether you use a free cash flow yield or you use a multiple, that is substantial value creation that we could not do on our own. There, there, there's just no way. And we saw that value in the Dynergy fleet. And then if you add the fact that in ERCOT, we wanted to get around 4,000 megawatts of additional gas-fired state-of-the-art power plants, we were able to do that between the Odessa acquisition and, and, and the Dynergy acquisition. So we created what we wanted in ERCOT. And then this exposure to capacity markets was something we were very interested in and it was important to us and we wanted to get into the two, the two best markets. If you really look at, and I know this is probably um, not a lot of people think this, but when you really get into it, you look at PJM and you look at ISO New England and who had the best combined cycle fleet in the country, it was by far Dynagy. Uh, and conventional wisdom may have led you to Calpine. And I think that's probably true if you want to include California, but that's California's not a market we're interested in. But when you look specifically at PJM and ISO New England, the best fleet set, set of assets, including the, the combined cycle plants, was Dynagy's. So we were able to get into those markets. And then the last thing is it gave us a nice beachhead you know, starting point for our retail business outside of ERCOT. And so they had their retail business. It's a nice retail business, but we, we have obviously visions of expanding our retail business outside of ERCOT and we have the supply base to do that now. And so for all those reasons, we felt strongly that this was the right deal. We looked at a lot of different things. And I mean, when I say that, Nate, we looked at midstream, we looked at waste to coal, we looked at our capabilities and broadly and said, what is the right thing to do as a company? And we kept coming back to the best thing for us, our core capabilities are in the power business, in the retail business. And so, and then we said, what's the best company for us? And we believed it was Dynagy. And then it doesn't hurt by the fact that, you know, Dynagy had gone from $35 a share in, in 2015, even in the early 2016, I believe. And at the time when we started discussions, they were trading around $7 a share. Yes. And we had to pay a premium to get them. But still, when you look at the overall price point, it was rather low. And, and, and so we liked where we were able to also acquire the assets. We thought it was a very good opportunity to buy at the bottom of the cycle. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. I, uh, I'm curious whether or not you could provide us with a description of the cyclicality. When you keep your eyes on the space, you can see when you know valuations just don't make any sense whatsoever. And you just described Dynagy's fleet as having the premier CCGT assets in, in those PJM and, and ISO New England. Why did the stock price drop so low? Why is there so much volatility in the IPP space. So, you know, look, this is something that is, is core to, to our strategy that I think created a lot of the volatility in the stock. Of course, there's commodity price cycles and, and that creates some of it. But what I think might be interesting to people is that the all-in contribution to gross margin in PJM and ISO New England, when you take capacity payments and energy payments, has ranged between $9 and roughly, I think it's $12 a KW a month between those two regions. And it's been relatively stable. So you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, if commodity prices are volatile, that doesn't seem like a great deal of volatility. And it's partly because 
the, the capacity markets have moved around quite a bit, but it's still a relatively stable stream. And that's another reason we liked this. I think a lot of people think that ISO New England and, 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 and PJM are out of favor, but the reality is they have a much more steady contribution to EBITDA than, for example, ERCOT has over the past because ERCOT's been more of a feast or famine because there's no capacity market. But to get to your direct question, I think the biggest contributor has been when there has been bad news or there has been a view that commodity prices are coming off, what has happened is the stocks have become under pressure, but the amount of leverage that the companies were carrying, there's no way that this industry should have been carrying six or seven times uh, debt to EBITDA. It's a competitive, commodity-based, capital-intensive business. And so I like to say there was this actually fairly good fundamental business wrapped with too much debt. And that debt created the, the squeeze on the stocks because there wasn't a lot of room to move when people thought when the commodity prices were going to drop, there wasn't a lot of room to move before you got into, uh, into distress. Now, so I think the industry created a lot of its own volatility. And then that fed on itself and what happened, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way, but it, it, you know, a lot of hedge funds took positions in these, in these businesses and they were short-term owners and they were trading it either whether it was a proxy for gas or whether they just liked the stock volatility of the business. And the long investors left because there was so much value destruction that it went on. And I, I also mentioned that part of the volatility too is that there wasn't a really good and consistent return of capital approach in this business. All the money was going to pay off this excessive debt just to stay alive. But the investments were done at the high of the cycle when people thought they had money because their stock price was up because the cycle was up. But in reality, they really didn't have that money because when the bottom dropped out, they overpaid for assets. So a lot of value destruction occurred. People overpaid for assets. All of that went to creating a sector that was highly volatile and out of favor. And I think we did most of it to ourselves. I think the fundamentals of our business are pretty sound. We've got a, an irreplaceable product. It's not a fast grower. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, at least in the near term, it may in the longer term, but it's not today, but it's fairly inelastic from a demand standpoint. So if you can get your leverage down, you can get your cost down and you, and you have to have your cost as low as it could possibly be. This, this particular business generates a tremendous amount of cash. And, and, and also the last thing is you need to have a strong retail business because retail business converts about 90% of, of the EBITDA to free, free cash flow. But if you can do that, and this is why I came to this company, big retail business, strong asset base, and an ability to reduce cost. If you can do all those things and keep your leverage low, because we came out of bankruptcy, we had very low leverage, that's a winning formula. And there's actually a very good business underlying that type of strategy. So the volatility in my mind was created mainly by the strategies of companies and that began with just carrying way too much leverage. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think you're, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. And, and since you, you just sort of, you basically outlined your strategy, but if you could possibly talk about or at least highlight the key components of Vistra's strategy, explaining what are the benefits of having a really strong retail business and a really solid fleet of generation assets. Yeah, so... 
You know, it all begins in my mind, it begins and ends with financial discipline and having a strong balance sheet. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, just visit thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes, and depending on the membership that you purchase, you can even have access to the transcripts. So just go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. Also, if you really enjoyed the music, you should check out Danheim. That's D-A-N-H-E-I-M. Mike at Danheim gave me permission to use the music for the podcast, and so a huge thanks to Danheim. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.